Okay, hello everyone, good morning. Um, my name, as Mike said, is Rich, and I'm going to be leading us through this next part of our meeting together. Um, and this morning we're going to be picking up again our series in the book of Colossians entitled Jesus Changes Everything Full Stop, um, essentially exploring how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus transforms every area of our lives, of our community, of how we relate to the world around us, um, and actually everything in the entire universe, from the largest galaxy to the smallest atom. And Colossians uh, is a letter written by a guy called Paul uh, to a group of believers in the first century living in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to correct some wrong teaching that's kind of crept into the church and to point them back to Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at quite a long section in chapter 2 from verses 1 to 15 where Paul identifies a problem with what's being taught and points them to the solution, to how ultimately Jesus is enough. And this is what he writes in Colossians 2. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Lydisha and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's a weighty passage. There's a lot in there. But in these verses, what we find is that Paul exposes the problem that has crept into the Colossian church, and he presents them with the solution. And so we can look at the passage in almost two sections. In the first half, 
in particularly verses 4 and 8, he shows what's been going wrong. That the church has been falling victim to some false teachers coming in, proclaiming a false gospel, fine-sounding arguments, which are actually nothing more than hollow and deceptive philosophy. And that's not to say that Paul opposes reasoned arguments and philosophy. You know, he's one of the greatest thinkers of his time. Uh, as a church last week, we helped to put on an event called Is Faith Reasonable? Helping challenge the idea that there's no basis to what we believe, helping to show that there is evidence that we can trust that informs our faith. But what Paul is getting at here is that you can have the best sounding arguments in the world, but if they take you captive rather than bringing you into freedom, they're nothing more than words in the wind. If they don't lead to life, they lead to decay. And that's a problem that we are no more immune to than the Colossians were. It's so easy to see ourselves as the heroes of our own stories, as the pinnacle of history, to trust in our cultural and technological and political and economic systems and see them start to take root at the center of our lives to shape who we are and what we do more than anything else. The reality is that we all have blind spots. There's always the temptation to try and add something to Jesus and present it as the real thing. For some, it's the promise of Jesus and health and wealth. For others, it's Jesus and a particular type of spiritual experience. For others, Jesus and a relationship or a certain style of preaching or a social action project. It can be good things or bad things. The God revealed through the Bible is a God who loves to heal, who loves to bless, to encounter, to build community, to declare truth, to serve the poor. But the problem is the same. We're so eager to move on from Jesus to other things. You know, our culture feels like it's got that one nailed. They feel like they've heard about Jesus in Sunday school. He sounds like a nice guy, but there's got to be something more. There's got to be something beyond that. There's got to be a deeper truth beyond that. We rush on because we don't see how it could be possibly true that Jesus, just Jesus, is enough. You know, that's something I see in my own life all the time. I recently had to take a year um, out of playing sport um, due to a number of different injuries that I had. Um, but the truth is, looking back now, more painful than any of those was the kind of slow, gradual realization of how tightly I'd bound up my identity and my faith with how fast I could run or how well I was playing at football. I'd managed to take something that I'd love to do, a good gift, and turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, into something that affected how I saw myself, you know, feeling like a failure because I couldn't do what I could do before how I saw others, jealousy that they could do the things that I couldn't, how I related to God, how that time out on my own for a run, bombing up and down a pitch, that was essential for me to get mentally and spiritually refreshed, how my failure to replace those meant I ended up isolating myself from God. Yet my experience was that 
that was a frustrating time, but ultimately a fruitful one. Because in that year, I had to learn again that core message that I am not what I do. That I'm not how well I do. I'm not anyone else or what they do. But that I'm accepted and adopted and known and loved. That Jesus didn't die so that I could add a bunch of stuff on top that defined who I am. He died so that everything I could ever need would be found in him and freely given to me and to you. Jesus died that we might know that he is enough. But that danger is present no matter what it is. You know, for those of us in the room who would say that we have centered our lives on Jesus, you know, we've all got our own systems, certain Bible reading plans, certain quiet time regimes certain measures of morality that tell us how we're doing. It can be easy to live out our Christianity as though we're living in a system, always measuring ourselves up against the system, against each other, and finding that we don't measure up. Somehow we conspire in our own ways to create for ourselves a Christianity without Christ, a routine which doesn't really necessitate his intrusion at all. We can see faith as a mechanism, something we're grateful for, but it's just one part of many. Singing songs, reading the Bible, coming to church on Sunday, making sure I keep a certain distance from a certain selection of sins. And if I don't, feeling suitably guilty about that for a suitably lengthy period of time. Our default, whether or not we're a believer, is to try and live within a system, to try and get everything ordered but God doesn't want us to live in a system. God wants us to live in his son. That's all the difference in the world. You know, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything, Jesus add anything equals nothing. And that's Paul's message in the second half of today's passage his antidote to the sickness that's taking hold in the church is to emphasize the all-sufficiency of what Jesus has already accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. He's writing so that the Colossians might not be deceived, but rather, in verse two, they might know the full mystery of God, namely Christ, so that they might grow in their faith, rooted evermore in the core truths of who Jesus is, and what he's done. Back in the autumn, Mike took us through verses 15 to 20 in chapter one, a wonderful song proclaiming Jesus as Lord over everything. That's what we've been singing about this morning. What we see is how that works out practically in his life, death, and resurrection in this passage, that Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King, Jesus over everything, isn't just a theoretical truth about a distant deity. It's a grounded reality that works itself out in how he hangs on a cross and dies, and then on the third day, walks out of a tomb, raised to life again. We find that the truth is far more beautiful than we could ever imagine, far more vast than we could ever hope. 
we find that the cross is the masterpiece of God's salvation plan. And in the second section of the passage, that's what we see. A whole range of of pictures and images and descriptions of what Jesus has achieved through his life, death, and resurrection. And what they mean for us. We find that we are united to him. That we're buried with him. That we're raised in him. That we're forgiven through him. That we're victorious alongside him. And this morning, we've only got time to scratch the surface of these. You could spend a lifetime exploring each one. But Paul's purpose here, my purpose this morning, is to sketch out something of the scope of salvation in order that we might be able to take a step back, to see it afresh with a new perspective, a bird's eye view, and then dive in again in order to get to grips with what each of these things mean for our lives and for the lives of those around us. You know, we have a number of ways that we love to do that as a church. This evening, we uh, run an evening seminar course that's looking all about the resurrection, all about raised. What does it mean that we're raised with Christ? In the week, we gather in different houses and different places for small groups to get into the nitty gritty of all of these things. But in all of those, the goal is never that we replace Jesus with a system, a system that slowly makes us a better person, slowly ensures that we're doing all the right things. No, it's that we would constantly and always have our gaze lifted to see who Jesus is and what he's done in order that the sight of him might transform everything for us. And so what we're going to do now is is zoom in, focus in on each of these five areas, get a snapshot of all of them in order that we might be able to catch something of the magnitude of what Jesus achieves. That's where we're going with the rest of our time this morning. And so first of all, united. Uh, Back in verse 7, Paul uses a couple of images to set the tone for our union with Christ. He writes that we are rooted in him and that we're built up in him. And this imagery of plants and buildings is something that we see right throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament, where we find a description of Israel as a vineyard and God as the gardener, of the temple, to Jesus, the one who says, I am the vine, who calls for us to build ourselves on him, the solid rock, to right to the end of the Bible the description of a redeemed and restored and renewed creation featuring a tree of life and a city of exquisite beauty. And both of those are pictures of what it is for us to be in Christ. And so to take that first one, for us to be rooted in Christ means that just as the roots of a plant pour out all of the goodness that they receive, all the nutrients and minerals and life-giving water, they pour it out into the rest of the plant. So too does Jesus pour out everything that we need, all the goodness and nourishment and sustenance and life. Just as the roots hold back nothing of the goodness they receive, but pass it all on in order that the plant might grow and bloom and bear fruit, 
so too does Jesus hold nothing back from us. You know, every good thing is found in him. And from him, it flows directly to us. Like all the nutrients and minerals and life-giving water flows from the roots to the plant. You know, if you've centered your life on Jesus, if you've been united to him in faith, then none of his goodness is withheld from you. None of it. All that is in him is ours. And in him is all goodness and all nourishment and all sustenance and all life. And in the same way, we're built up in him like a house built upon a solid foundation. You know, it isn't that the foundations of a house are at some point forgotten and moved on from. You don't start building a house and then halfway through the process decide you want to build it somewhere else, build it down the road instead. Foundations will only ever be the solid base on which the house stands or falls. And just as the foundation sits forever at the core of a building's strength, so too is our union with Christ the foundation of all that we are, the core of all that we do. It's not something we ever move on from to other ideologies, theologies, philosophies. That's what the Colossians were in danger of doing. No, Jesus is the foundational building block. He's the cornerstone of all that we are and all that we do. And at the same time, what you can build depends on your foundations. And you can't build a skyscraper with foundations no deeper than a puddle. Other things, other fine-sounding arguments, as Paul calls them, they might provide a foundation that gets us so far, but the promise of the Bible is the foundation we have by centering our lives on Jesus is a foundation of love that is wider and longer and higher and deeper than we can ever fully grasp. Just as a foundation limits the size of a building, so too does the unlimited foundation that we have in Christ provide everything we could ever need on which to build our lives. And so, with all that in mind, when we then get to verses 9 and 10, in the light of all of that imagery, holding it all together, and we read, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Suddenly, our eyes are opened to see the magnitude of what that means, that this one, this is who, he's the fulfillment of everything that's been promised since the creation of the world, everything that we have to hope for in the future, this one who is the whole fullness of God in bodily form, who created everything and sustains it in every moment by his word, this Jesus is ours. He's the root that gives life. He's the foundation that sustains. And in him, you have fullness. This Jesus withholds nothing of the goodness of God from you. Do you know that Jesus this morning? So that's the first picture, union with Christ. And the second is that just as we are united with him, so too we're buried with him. Verses 
11 and 12 sound a bit strange to our ears. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. And I've heard it said that the only question about the Bible that parents dread more from their children than what is circumcision is what is a concubine. <laughs> I haven't got any personal experience of that, but that's, that's what I hear. Um, you know, churches, the reality is we do some weird things. Um, we dunk people underwater like we did last week. We, we get together and sometimes we eat bread and drink grape juice and other times we don't. We sing songs and lift our hands in the air and we sit and listen to a talk, all of which are pretty unusual. But we don't do that. We don't do that. So why did God's people do it in the Old Testament? What was that all about? Well, Paul explains that essentially that was about this. It's a sign pointing both to a problem and a solution. See, the problem, as we see right throughout the Bible, is, is deadly serious. You know, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, um, verse 1, that humanity was spiritually dead. He says it again in this passage today, that each of us have chosen for ourselves that life where we put us at the center, where we live for our wants and our desires and our needs, where we spurn goodness and justice and love in favor of pride and selfishness and indulgence. In our reasoning, in our choices, in our desires, in our actions, we've chosen to live for ourselves. We've walked away from God and from others. You know, as much as I wish I could pin some of my past mistakes on emotions or hormones or things like that, the cold reality is that loads of the stuff I've done wrong has been rationalized and thought through, and I've done it anyway. And I shouldn't have, but there's something inside that wants it. And that's what Paul's talking about. He calls it our sinful nature, our flesh that natural instinct to live curving in on ourselves rather than poured out towards God. Before God, we are both rebels and failures. And Paul doesn't pull any punches with his diagnosis of where that leaves us. We are dead, spiritually empty, exhausted, ended, and buried. And so what does God do? He allows himself to be buried with us. You know, the source of life, the creator of all things, the architect of the cosmos, the God of all the universe, takes on our flesh, born as a baby, grown as a man, and lives that he might one day die on a tree. And though he lives a perfect life without sin, he takes our sinful nature on himself in order that he might carry it to the grave with him once and for all. You know, what Paul means in Colossians when he talks about circumcision is that that is about this. That circumcision was an ancient expression of faith that our sinful nature would one day be dealt with, be literally cut off once and for all by Jesus through his death 
and his resurrection. It's a sign pointing forward to that in the same way that baptism now is a sign pointing back to what Jesus has done. A sign that before was limited to a single people group, to men within that group at a certain point in history is now replaced with a new expression which is open to everyone of every nation. The only qualifier, as we read in the second half of verse 12, is that it's through our faith. And that's what we celebrated last week. The encouragement that we baptize people as a physical act that demonstrates that as surely as an outward washing, water washes away dirt from the body. So surely has he washed us inwardly to our very core by his death and by his giving of the spirit to us. So surely has he cut off our sinful nature once and for all, even though for the time being, we still grapple with it in its death throes. Even more than us saying that we are dedicating ourselves to God, baptism is a declaration from God that he has dedicated himself to us, that he has given himself for us. But in the same way that we didn't leave those who were baptized last week under the water, um, at least not for that long, um, just as we're buried with Christ, so too are we raised with him. The resurrection stands as the center point of history and the center point of the Christian faith. If that didn't happen, then Christianity is worthless. We're to be pitied above all others, Paul writes elsewhere. But if it did, if it did, G.K. Chesterton writes, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they had hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in the appearance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool not of the evening, but of the dawn. If the resurrection is true, then it's a new beginning, a new Eden, a reestablishing of all that God once declared good. God and man restored to right relationship through the God-man, Jesus, that they might once again walk together. The brokenness of the world was found insufficient to match the wholeness and life that was in him. And so death instead is swallowed up in victory, a sting that can no longer last, the new creation inaugurated in the midst of the old, as the old waits in anticipation for the fullness of the new to come, and the promise that one day everything will be restored and redeemed. And we are caught up in that. God is doing through the gospel what he's always intended to do, what he's always called for his people to do, to enter into the fullness of life that he gives us. 
the resurrection life in Christ. That just as he's begun the grand project for the redemption of all things in the work of raising his son from the dead, he's made us partners in it and ambassadors for it by making us alive with Christ when we trust in him. And this leads us on naturally to the fourth image, forgiven. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. See, it'd be no good if Jesus did all of that and then we went and messed it up again, because we would if we could. So it's, it's not just all the stuff that had been leading us to death in the past, but all the stuff we might do in the future as well that we need sorting out. Becoming a Christian doesn't make you a perfect person. There are struggles and trials and sufferings. We get things wrong, we make mistakes, just like anyone else. And all of that might threaten to cut us off from God again if we live in a system and not in the sun. See, in a system, if we mess up, we need someone to make that right again. If we live in the sun, everything changes. In one moment, he takes all that sin. And as he's nailed to the cross, he bears it with him. And how does he do it? He lives a sinless life. And the trouble is, sinless can tell us what he's not. It tells us that Jesus was not selfish or heartless or cruel or petty or proud. It can come across as a bit dry, a bit bland, a bit lifeless. But as we read the accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels, that's not the impression that we get at all. There we find someone who is overflowing with life, healing and health, loaves and fishes, teaching and service, compassion and authority. Mike Reeves writes that Jesus is generous and resolute, gentle and firm. He's loving, but not soppy. He's red-blooded and human, but not rough. He's pure, but never dull. He's serious with sunbeams of wit. He's free from failure, yet transparently humble. One who out-argues all comers, but never for the sake of the win. Someone who made the grandest claims about himself, yet never with a hint of pride. That's who Jesus is. That's how he lived, someone who, who loved God and loved people, someone with a huge heart who hated evil and cared for the poor. Sinless, but not in a way that's, that's dry and bland and lifeless. Rather, someone you have to look at and say, here is someone truly alive, someone far more full and complete than anyone else, someone far more human than any other. And that, I think, is the, the crux of what it means that Jesus has taken our sins and nailed them to the cross with him. Yeah. That sin is something which ultimately robs us of our humanity. It makes us less human. And therefore, it needs to be dealt with in order that we can be everything we were always meant to be. And so Jesus, the perfect man, the sinless man, the first and only person to keep and fulfill the law of God in its entirety by loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving his neighbor as himself. 
He provides for us the model of what we were always meant to be. And he brings to us the loving relationship that he's always enjoyed with his father. The life of God displayed in humanity. And by resting in him, by taking hold of that resurrection life, which is now within us, is now within you, we can know that forgiveness for ourselves. We can begin to offer it and express it to those around us as we seek to live more like Jesus. Not with condemnation hanging over us if we don't do well enough, but resting free from that, knowing that Jesus has lived the life we never could. He's taken on himself the cost of everything we've ever gotten wrong. We don't need to fear. We don't have to live sweating in nervous dread like rugby fans watching the last 10 minutes of England-Wales yesterday, not knowing what's going to happen, gazing at the future, thinking about our eternal destiny as we look at it between our fingers. The final whistle has already been blown. The, the cost has been borne. The victory has been won in Christ. And that's the final image, the final flourish. Jesus victorious, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The, the very instrument of disgrace and death by which everything in the universe that is opposed to light and life and goodness thought that they had conquered Jesus was turned by him into the instrument of their defeat and their disablement. Like a Roman general riding back from war at the head of a procession of defeated and captured enemies, Jesus makes a spectacle of the very real powers of darkness and evil in the world, powers that the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about. But he does it through his death. That what appears on the surface as his greatest defeat is in fact the ultimate moment of his victory by which he achieves everything that we looked at this morning. We are not to settle for a shallow view of Jesus, a good guy, a great moral teacher, a Sunday school story. He is the undisputed Lord of the universe who conquers by his death and in whom we are found. We worship a God who is both awesomely powerful and unbelievably kind. What we see in the world is more often than not, the more power someone gets, the more isolated they become, the less kindness they show. God is the opposite. His strength is far beyond anything we could imagine. And yet so too is his love and his care and his compassion for each and every one of us. And so he allows himself to hang on a cross and to die, full of kindness and compassion for his people. And yet in that moment gives the ultimate show of power in defeating everything that stands against righteousness and justice and goodness and truth. And so where does all of that leave us? Leaves us united, buried, raised, forgiven, and victorious. 
salvation is far larger than we can ever get to grips with. But the message at the heart of it is simple, that Jesus is enough. There are other religions besides Christianity. There are other leaders besides Jesus. But there is no other gospel. There is no other good news that changes everything. That Jesus is enough. And the invitation this morning is to come and to lift our gaze again. To see that whether for the first time or the thousandth time to remember again that there is nothing for us to add. No philosophies or systems that go higher or deeper or wider or further than what he has done. Nothing is more comprehensive or more necessary. The invitation is simply to come to take hold by faith of everything that's already been accomplished and to receive it with joy. In a minute, we're gonna pray. Um, I'd love if, if you wanna respond to that, if you've seen this Jesus again this morning, you wanna get a fresh glimpse of him, you wanna get a fresh taste of him, I'd love for you to join me in praying as we do. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel like you've been living in that system, like you're going through the motions of Christianity. But you need that fresh sight of Jesus this morning. I'd love for you to pray. Perhaps you feel this morning like you're going through trials. But you need to know again that truth that Jesus is enough, not as a head reality, but as a heart reality. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've never gotten to know Jesus, but you know that you want to. In a moment, I'm gonna pray, and then after that, there'll be an opportunity to come to the front to receive prayer, not because it's special down here, just because there's a little bit more space. And so why don't we stand together? Lord Jesus, we come in awe and in wonder. We stand before you. We recognize that you are the one and only. We recognize that you are the name above all names. We come this morning, Jesus, and we recognize that you are enough. We repent of all of the things in our lives that we've tried to add to you, that we've tried to put before you, that we've allowed to define our identity and our actions and our thoughts. We lay them to one side. And we say again, come and fill our vision open the eyes of our heart that we might see again something of your beauty. 
that we might know again the reality that you are enough, that nothing more is needed. And I pray as we go out this week, as we take that knowledge with us to the places that we go, to our homes, to our workplaces, to the, the supermarkets and the streets and the schools that form our lives, Lord. We pray that we would do that empowered by a clear sight of you, full of the resurrection life that you have placed within us, yes. united to you, knowing that we have been buried and raised in Christ, free from condemnation, not living to prove ourselves to others, but resting in you, facing whatever comes our way, knowing that you have conquered, that you are victorious. In your name we pray.